Hey everyone, welcome once again to Isotope's The New Audio Podcast. I am Sean Greenhall. This month I am so excited to bring you a conversation that I had with one of my musical and comedic heroes, Harry Shearer. Harry is so ingrained in American pop culture that at this point you might not even know that you know him. Harry is the creative force of nature, having been at different times an actor, comedian, writer, musician, author, radio host, director, and producer. People probably know him best for his work on The Simpsons as Mr. Burns, Smithers, Flanders, even Principal Skinner. But in my heart, Harry will always be Derek Smalls, the iconic bass player from the early 80s heavy metal band Spinal Tap. Later on in the podcast, I happen to crush Isotope product specialist Jeff Manchester in a debate about four tracks versus limitless tracks on a recurring segment, The Can-Am Games. Later, we chat about Radiohead's recent release B-side from OK Computer called I Promise. You can find a link to the song in the notes for the show. Just a bit of housekeeping and a request to our listeners. If you are liking this podcast, please, please share it on SoundCloud or any of your social networks as it would be great to get the word out. So follow Isotope on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat. And now here's my interview with Harry Shearer. So can you tell me how you found out about Isotope and some of our products? Yeah. Um, I, um, I had originally been doing business for like uh, sound repair with uh, a, a another company whose name shall not be mentioned. Aha. <laughs> and uh, this, was, this was quite a while ago. And uh, I had my first iLock. And uh, I had some um, plugins from another company and a plug and some serious sound repair product uh, plugins from this company. And of course, within the first 30 days of having my first iLock, I lost my first iLock. <laughs> and the other company, uh, also not to be named, uh, said, uh, <laughs> I mean, the, the, the non uh, audio repair plugin company. Said, I can't imagine who you're talking I, about. I know you can't. Uh, but you know, I'll give you a few days to do your homework. Uh, but, uh, the other company said, uh, you know, when you buy your new iLock, send us the information and we'll transfer the licenses to that one. And the company in question, uh, of audio repair fame, uh, said, well, you can buy the thousand dollar package again. Oof. And so, uh, I started looking around for, uh, you know, something else in it. And I believe it was. Uh, my friend and producer, uh, well, I, let's see, it was either C.J. Vanston, who produces uh, my records and produced the last Final Tap record, or it was uh, my friend John Fishback, who produced a bunch of uh, Judith Owens records, said, well, there's this great company called Isotope that does uh, great audio repair stuff, and they don't treat you like that. <laughs> and, that <laughs> and that was how I first heard about it. Very cool. Um, yeah, I, I had a, a great conversation with CJ a little over a year ago, and he seems great. How did you uh, How did you sort of meet him and, and get into all that? CJ, when we started to prepare, when Spinal Tap started to prepare for the Break Like the Wind tour in 1992, <laughs> uh, we knew we were looking around for a keyboard player. I'm, I'm now absolutely bewildered to say that I don't remember who recommended him, but he came in and, uh, hassled us and, uh, we worked with him on that tour. Uh, he was spectacular. And then we worked with him, um, on the, uh, couple of singles. There's a song called warmer than hell that we did for the live thing. And then we did this <laughs> uh, record uh, called back from the dead. And uh, he did our tour in 2000, which was uh, where we played Carnegie, as I called it from the from the stage, Carnegie fucking hall. Uh, <laughs> Congratulations, sir. I did. I was very proud of that. And uh, the Greek theater and, and uh, some other places. And and uh, then when I started making my own records um, in about 2008, uh, uh, he came aboard as uh one of the producers and uh, arrangers, and uh, we've been working together pretty solidly ever since. Yeah, very cool guy. Um, not for not not for nothing. I'm a huge Spinal Tap fan, obviously, as everybody is that works here. But 
a little bit overlooked is the Break Like the Wind press tour. On YouTube, there's a press appearance on like Good Morning America or like one of those like morning shows that is just beautiful. It is just so um, in in that context, just so wonderful. And I I just want to say thank you for that. Oh, I'll have to check it out. Thank you. Um, yeah, CJ is, uh, he's, he's really, uh, one of the most talented, uh, guys in that, in that world that I know. He's a, he's a great player, but also a great arranger, great producer. Um, you know, the, the thing about my, my personal records is that we were working in a lot of different styles and I'd come in with a song that, you know, basically written in the style of whoever the character was that was singing the song. Right. Uh, so he had to be uh, nimble enough to really uh, and was to master uh, the intricacies of a bunch of different musical styles and just would always know whom to call to, to play the parts that really just gave gave those songs uh, incredible life. So he's, he's wonderful. Very cool. Um... So obviously I, I spent most of the day uh, researching you and I, I came upon your interview with Mark Marin, who I'm a, who I'm a huge fan of, by the way. Yeah. Um, and you guys were talking about how um, some of the experiences that you had as a child actor and, and performer, um, you know, you, you had a chance to look at some of the older performers and, and their professionalism really affected the way that you go about your work and I wonder I wondered if you could talk about that a little bit because I, I think it's sort of missing from the American experience at this point <laughs> you think uh, <laughs> yeah well I mean I had the, the great honor of of spending um, eight years of my childhood and what we now thanks to the Disney Channel call our tweenhood <laughs> uh, as well as my early teenhood uh, working for a giant of the comedy business of an earlier era by the name of Jack Benny. Oh, yeah. And, uh, that was really my, as it turned out, that was my comedy school and, uh, my school for a lot about show business, not because anybody ever said, Hey kid, watch this or any of that. It's just, you, you know, you're in the middle of that scene and see how they act. And then when I came back into show business as a so-called grown up, um, I was expecting other people to be behaving <laughs> in a similar way and have been through a multi-decade uh, long uh, process of shock that they don't. Uh, so, you know, the, the he had been in vaudeville, went into radio and television, did, did movies. So did, uh, you know, was, was to borrow a Howard Sternism, a king of all media. Of course. But the the radio and then the television show was sort of a constant. It was a a weekly show in both media uh, for two or three decades. And he had a group around him that had worked with him for quite a while. He had four writers. Now, I mean, it's shocking to just think that a weekly television program um, these days, you know, the writer's room is is got if it doesn't have at least 16 people. Right. Right. Uh, Four people would turn out that show. Two people wrote the Bilko show. Um, you know, the, the, the iconic sh- uh, shows that made, uh, sort of the, set the table for television comedy were mm-hmm. the, the Honeymooners, for goodness sake, I think was written by one guy. Um, so it was just a, a, a partly a, a factor of maybe there wasn't that much money for 16 writers, but also... <laughs> um, the writers and the performers sort of knew each other. They'd worked together for a while. They trusted each other. Uh, there was a shared language. There was a shared understanding of, of what was funny. Um, there wasn't the need to sort of, and I, and I think there's just a mathematical, uh, reality, sadly, that, um, when, uh, broadcasting executives look at, a show and say that, gee, that was funny. And there were four people writing that. Well, you know, it's got to be twice as funny as twice as many. <laughs> and so on and so forth. Um, but anyway, so the, the, 
the, the vibe around the Benny show was uh, you were there because you were a pro. And so not a lot of time had to be wasted. Uh, it, it wasn't, you know, uh, the, the irony I found in a lot of places I've worked is that uh, the people who are doing dramas, uh, especially medical shows, which I guess started in a couple one year and I, I made this observation. The people who are doing those shows where they're, you know, serious stuff about causes of death and all this stuff. Uh, they're joking around like crazy when the cameras are not rolling. And the people who are doing comedy shows are like having high opera. <laughs> you know, but this isn't, this isn't the way the joke works. <laughs> so that there was, and that was no, nothing like that was going on at the Benny show. It was just, we know what we're doing. We do it when we go home. Yeah. Um, bring in the, was, bring in the crash card for that joke. Right. Yeah. You know, it, it just, uh, this wasn't anything that I remembered firsthand, but my mom told me later there was a, uh, you know, I wasn't the only child who worked on his show and there was another kid who, who worked on his show. I think this was still when it was radio. And, uh, so there would be a dress rehearsal and then a couple hours later we'd do the actual broadcast live in those days. And, uh, so after the dress rehearsal, this other kid, uh, asked Jack Benny, he said, Mr. Benny, can I ask you a question? He said, sure. Benny was very approachable always. The, the, uh, you know, for a star of that magnitude, um, you know, kids could talk to him, uh, easily. Uh, and, and the kid said, when, uh, the audience laughs, how long do I wait before I start talking again? <laughs> and he never worked for Benny again Ooh. because, you know, you were supposed to know. You were supposed. They, it, it was professional in that sense that they're not there to teach you how to do your stuff. It's professional in the sense that we assume you know how to do your stuff, even kids. Um, and it's it's true. I mean, I hope my boss isn't listening to this right now because I uh, wow, I would be fired immediately. <laughs> well, I mean, the thing about comedy is, and the reason that people in comedy so often do music. Uh, I mean, Benny was a very good violinist, for example, made fun of it, made fun of, uh, pretended to be a really bad violin player and, and, and inflicting it on everybody. But he really was a good player uh, is because a lot of, of what comedy does is musical in terms of things like timing. Absolutely. And rhythms. And so if you have a musical ear, you kind of sense. And if you've heard comedy being done. I mean, as a kid, I was listening to it long before I got into the business. If you've heard it being done, you recognize the tempo of, okay, when the audience kind of gets down to about three quarters reduced in volume from where it started, it's time to start talking. And a kid who didn't know that really, you know, really wasn't ready. Uh, but if you were ready, uh, it was the calmest, coolest, uh, most relaxed kind of you know, but, but relaxed, not in the sense of we don't care what we're doing or we don't care how good it is. It's relaxed in the sense of we don't have to make high melodrama out of this. Right. Uh, you know, that, that's what I, that kind of, uh, that kind of, uh, jives with something else that you said before around improvisation, which is that, um, especially around the Christopher Guest movies that you've been involved with, that the, mm -hmm. the best, uh, improvisers are the best listeners. And I feel like musicians are the same way. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. Um, uh, and you know, but you, you play, I mean, my wife is, is for the last two or three years has been playing with this wonderful, uh, Portuguese percussionist and drummer. And, uh, I've, I've played with him early on when she was getting to know him. And I, I said when her bass player, Lee, Lee the legendary Leland Sklar came in to, to play his first gig with this guy, his name is Pedro Segundo. I'd say, you, you will not believe it. Um, because he's, he's, uh, he's a, a drummer and a percussionist with this incredible sense of groove, yep. but he's always listening. He's mm -hmm. always listening. That's what you, you know, that's what you, and then you, you know, you're in that's this web of listening. You're listening to him. He's listening to you. And it is the same with improv, you know, uh, the, the shorthand, uh, is that, uh, ad libbing is talking and improvisation is listening. I love that. I love that. Um, and there's some like joke about, 
you know, rock versus jazz in there probably, but we'll leave that for later. <laughs> um, I kind of. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I wanted to ask you this question. You've made a bunch of uh, music in different eras. Obviously, Spinal Tap was like 82. Um, and I'm sure, I think you were doing, you've, you've done all kinds of music, you know, throughout the course of your life. Um, what do you, what do you think of modern music production having seen, you know, lots of different kinds of it? Well, I mean, that, that's a pretty broad range, modern music production. Um, I guess I would say, so let me say, um, you know, computers, pro tools, uh, well, endless, uh, ability to edit. Yeah, I, I'm being a a not great player. Uh, I am very grateful for a modern production. <laughs> uh, Me too. Yeah, um, I mean, it, they save my life every fucking day mm -hmm. um, because I'm not the kind of person that can uh, lay down a part and uh, walk away and go done, perfect. You know, they're 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 uh, they're. There are drummers in, in L.A. who are notorious for, you know, uh, after the first take of something, they've already got the car keys in hand and walking yeah. out the studio yeah, yeah, door. Yeah. Um, not one of those. Um, I think that the, um, the ability to um, kind of get – I think one of the great things about this moment is we now have – a, a nice long slice of recording history behind us. Yeah. And, uh, uh, those of us who are good listeners have heard a lot of it and have absorbed a lot of different sounds for songs and sounds for production. And most of those were artifacts of what technology was available at that, at the time mm -hmm. those records were made. And the beautiful thing is that now we have tools to be able to, pretty accurately emulate, uh, depending on what the song or piece we're working on calls for to emulate any of those techniques and sounds, you know, we can emulate the sounds of those instruments. We can emulate the sounds of those mics. We can emulate the sounds of those reverbs from whichever era we're hearkening back to, or mm -hmm. we can something new. Um, and I, I you know, it, now, um, I'm reminded of, of, when I was, I'm, I'm kind of a, um, skeptic overall and, and especially when it comes to technology. So, you know, I have to be shown that something is really a, an advance. I remember in the early days when I was, and I'm a late adopter and, <laughs> me too. <laughs> uh, you know, to me, early adopters have another, uh, have another more proper name. It's called beta testers. <laughs> but, uh, when a little tech humor there. Nice. Yeah. Thank you. But before I bought my first computer, I was listening to all the, you know, evangelization of the personal computer in, in the early days of the Internet. And uh, people would say, but, you know, it's it's so amazing you, you know, for creative people. You can do anything. And I would think, you know, this sounds like an engineer talking about creative people, yeah. because if you say to a creative person here, sit down in this room and you and uh, you have this box and you can do anything, uh, uh, the, the reaction of most creative people I know would be to just be stunned and, and not be able to, you know, move the, the, uh, the thing that creative people I think need is some kind of box to be put in, you know, okay, here are the parameters of right. what you can do. And then you just try to bust them down and, and, and get to the edge of them as far as you can. So the danger is that it, it, we're in that digital world now where, you can do anything. No limitations. Yeah. So, oh, what do I want to do? <laughs> um, uh, you and know. Like, and par paralyzed by your choices. Paralyzed by your choices, yeah. So it's it's good if you know what you want to do. Then the, then the, 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 this is like a, a, a wonderful time to be working. Yeah. Very cool. Great answer. Um, really quick question. This could be a yes or no answer. Uh, is, okay. Der is Derek Smalls oh. compensating for something with his two bases? <laughs> oh, I mean, when he was playing the, the double neck? Yes. Um, well, he only, I mean, in, in fact, he, he only, as a, as a, as a human being, a, a physical, actual human being, uh, 
he's compensating for the fact that he only has one neck. <laughs> I think he's always felt stymied by that. Oh shit, that was good. Um <laughs> Uh, so I was, the follow-up was our bass players in general, uh, compensating for something, but I'm going to leave that there. I'm going to let the audience sort that one out. Um, so I I, I have to say in defense of, of that, my instrument, my, my chosen instrument, um, I know a lot of people who play a lot of different instruments. Um, the people that I feel closest to and the people whose vibe I like most are bass players. Interesting. Yeah. So you and Sting uh, are like super close. Yeah, yeah, we're we're bosom buddies. <laughs> nice. Um, no, it's, you know, it's, it's most bass players I know, um, and I may know, you know, I know I know people who play in a lot of different uh, kinds of music, but I I do gravitate toward bass players mm-hmm. because uh, uh, while I admire and and I'm friendly with guitar players. Bass players have a sort of a more manageable ego. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a lot of them. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, so there is that. There is that. Um, so moving right along, uh, this is something I, I just got to get out there. Um, you know, you're you're a broadcaster. You have your mm-hmm. own show, Le Show, now. Um, you, you were on the radio earlier in your career. Um, you're well known for your uh, impressions and your voices on The Simpsons. Um, I have a co-host, uh, Jeff Manchester, and he's a terrible broadcaster. I was, <laughs> uh, I was wondering if you, it, did, did you have a tip for him? Like, what's your one thing? Just like, this could help you to pull it together a little bit. Um, gee, um, well, I mean, I, I, my one tip for people who are terrible broadcasters is get out of the business. <laughs> um, you know, I, I guess, um, I learned one thing. I mean, it's not universally applicable, but um, since I haven't heard him, uh, I'm not really able to diagnose and prescribe uh, uh, with great precision. <laughs> but I, uh, when I was growing up, and I, I've always liked radio. I mean, I, I do radio because I like it, and I, I'm, I'm a fan of the medium uh, and, and where it's led, you know, in terms of podcasting. Mm-hmm. But there was a guy who was... Um, a, and, and I didn't agree with most of what he said at all. So I wasn't listening for that reason. I was listening for two things. Um, the music of his voice, and his voice was a very musical voice. I mean, mm-hmm. not that he sang, he, was a, he talked, he was a newscaster. But he also, and, and this was at a time when, uh, technical, for technical reasons, among others, uh, everybody in radio was told no dead air. Mm-hmm. Always keep something going on all the time. Talk a mile a minute. Talk fast. Talk. You know, don't take a lot of breaths. Uh, you know, just keep it. Keep it going. Keep yakking. And this guy was the opposite. He was. I don't know if you ever heard of him, but his name was Paul Harvey. And yeah, uh, I've heard that name. Yeah, and he was like to me a great jazz musician in that it wasn't. The notes he was playing, it was the pauses. Um, and he'd leave these pauses for you to, you know, either laugh or think about what he had just said or or something. I don't, you know, I actually, I, I actually went and watched him do one of his shows late in his career. And I realized that one of the reasons he was leaving these pauses is because he had these papers in front of him. And he was trying to figure out which, which story to read next. And he would just be going like this. <laughs> but the pauses were as effective as anything, anything he said. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, when the light goes, when the light goes on, when you start recording, you just start feeling like you have to fill every, even now people still feel like you have to fill every available, uh, millisecond with some sound. And, uh, that's why I think, uh, people in the podcast space will say a lot of us. Yeah. (laughs) I'm guilty. So, and I'm, I'm guilty of it too on my radio show. I, I listen back sometimes. And I think you don't really have to make a noise there. <laughs> yeah. I, I um, had, a, you know, we interviewed a musician uh, last month from this band Disclosure and we were rushed into it and I was super nervous and I just listened back and it was just a ton of ums and ahs. And I was like, I might be in the wrong biz. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, you know, you, you can, you can let 
I mean, obviously, especially when you're not live, you can always uh, tighten up the, the spaces anyway. Oh, yeah. You don't always have to make a noise would be my advice to your, your partner. <laughs> Very cool. Thank you. So this is uh, going a little deeper. This is another another theme that I, I got from your interview with Mark Marin. You talked about the fear that, that you and your fellow performers go through when the camera goes on, when you're improvising for like a Christopher Guest thing, that there's sort mm-hmm. of a, a, a terror that happens. And then similarly to that, there's sort of a, a desperation in, in show business in general that mm-hmm. is rear, real and palpable, but nobody really talks about it. And I, and I feel like there's a, a direct analogy to be drawn with the music industry on the production side, on the engineering side, um, you know, the, the musicians, the players, you know, there's a lot of fear that's driving how all this happens, but nobody really speaks to it. Um, do you have any advice for up and coming producer engineers on how to, how to cope with that fear? Um, well, let me start by, by, um, recalling the most scared I ever was in, in a recording studio. Mm-hmm. Um, we were doing Spinal Tap. We're doing our second record called Break Like the Wind. <laughs> and uh, we had, we just thought it would be cool to try four different uh, producers and see what results we got. And uh, so two songs we did with this, uh, at the time, very hot uh, hard rock and metal producer named Dave Jordan. And... Every other producer that we'd ever worked with uh, before or since, um, we would go into the studio, we would re- rehearse the songs, we'd uh, be in some uh, array in the studio where you know the drummer would be uh, baffled, but we'd be playing together, uh, you know, uh, everybody playing uh, the song down at the same time, you know, going to do fixes later, but yep. all playing at the same time. Dave had an absolutely different way of working. Uh, drummer would go in, play his part. Basically, uh, he, what he was playing was just triggers for samples. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I would come in and play my bass parts in the control room by myself. <laughs> Nowhere to hide. <laughs> uh, just naked as a fucking jaybird, you know? Yeah. I think it was as scary as that, you know, it's like, God, like, can I get some chorus on this? <laughs> anything, anything, some soup. Um, and, and nothing is as frightening as just being, you know, it was the most unpleasant, uh, way of making records I ever experienced. And the two songs sound fucking great. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. No, I mean, it, it's like, I, I would never willingly go through that again, but you know, <laughs> he knew what he was doing and he knew how to do it. And he knew how to make something really good out of it. So um, there's no right way or wrong way to do any of this. Um, and fear, you know, if you, performers, I think, uh, are familiar with the fact that fear or at least nervousness is what um, is the is the raw material of adrenaline. Oh, yeah. And if you if you try to avoid or negate or deny the fear, uh, you deny yourself the ability to kind of experience that and then go, okay, now let's let's go fucking do this. Yeah. Yeah. And that adrenaline drive. So fear is not something to be afraid of. Um, Fear is something to recognize that you're now you're dealing with the raw material of what you need to, to, you know, power through and do a great job. Great answer. I love that. So I, I've, I've also heard from CJ that you love nectar. Um, can you tell me why you, why you love it? There are two things. Uh, well, yeah, um, there are two things I use on every musical project that I do. I, I mean, I, I make a lot of songs for the radio show. Uh, nectar uh, and ozone I use on every one of them. Um, nectar, uh, I, I just can't believe... Uh, you know, I'm not a professional singer. I am, you know, I, I can sing and I can sing in character. And so I can I'm, end up singing in a lot of different styles or, or, you know, because I'm singing these different right. characters. I don't have a way of singing that's called Harry's voice. I'm always singing in character because it's basically comedy music. So I'm having to, you know, do stuff that 
uh, a normal singer wouldn't do in terms of getting dangerously uh, close to being out of my range and things like that. Um, and so, <laughs> but I'm looking for comic effect, uh -huh. but I'm also looking for a, a, a decent performance. Uh, the two things have to go together. And um, I'm just amazed at how after I do what I think is, uh, okay, that's that's as good as I can <laughs> That's like what Trump should would sound like singing. Uh, I can find a, a uh, usually I can find a preset in Nectar that uh, is appropriate for the musical setting, but also just makes the vocal so much more musical. Um, there's a it, it's I mean I think it's a it's probably the best named product in the in the business because it is something. It adds a certain audible sweetness to uh, what's going on uh, in terms of it's. It just seems to to um, bring a musicality to uh, what what in in my hands is you know teeters on the on the edge of non musicality. <laughs> so I'm 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 in love with it, uh, and I, I'm I, as I say I use it on on every every project. If we made a Trump preset, would you use it? <laughs> Well, I, I would consult on it. Uh, okay, great. Let's um, do it. But uh, and then you know, I think I, I I've gotten the mix as as good as I can get. I'm always working on deadline. I'm always working in tight, very tight uh, time spaces, uh, or uh, Einstein would call it space time. And uh, uh, you know, then I I just I go into ozone and I I immediately see the. You know, with with the kind of with satirical songs, not parody songs, but original songs that have satirical lyrics, you want the musical setting to be where it should be in the mix, but you also want the vocals to be up front much more than you would in ordinary uh, song mix, perhaps where people are going to hear it three or four times to, before they get the, the all the lyrics. You want the lyrics to pop out first time yep. and those two those two desires are sometimes mutually incompatible and i find ozone really uh helps that come together helps me square that circle of, of having the track and the various parts where they should where they would be in the mix that that kind of music would have and yet lets the vocal pop through fantastic um very last thing Mm -hmm. Could you do a, a sign off for me as Handsome Dan uh, fr from uh, Wayne's World 2? I don't even remember what Handsome Dan <laughs> I, I mean, I remember, I, I remember him saying, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> that's about all I remember, man. <laughs> that's great. That's perfect, actually. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, I have to tell you where he came from. Um, yes, go ahead. There was a guy on radio in San Francisco, and of, of course I remember his name, because I always remember the bad guys. Uh, uh, it was Don Blue, of course not his real name, it was radio. Um, and he was a morning DJ, and I was on, uh, booked on his show with, uh, I don't remember if it was with Michael and Chris, or why I was there, but it was, uh, you know, it was before Spinal Tap. Um, and uh, he's on from seven to eight in the morning. I'm in, I'm in there with him from seven to eight to talk about something. And it was just this nonstop. He's got these, you know, cartridges that he's slamming into the cart machines, which were the way that they played pre-recorded product in those days. Uh -huh. And uh, he's got the. I'm doing it now. I'm going. Uh huh. Yeah. And he's got the weather, and he's got the the traffic that he's got to go through, and he's got the commercials, and he's got the this. And he was, you know, I I went through an hour of that. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. <laughs> And um, so when I went to Saturday Night Live, uh, I wrote a uh, Howard Hessman was hosting that week, and he was uh, basically plugging the fact that uh, his TV series was moving to a new night. And so we did a sketch. I wrote a sketch where he was on with basically Don Blue, trying to get a word in about that. And uh, and and uh, the guys who did Wayne's World Two had remembered that sketch, and that's 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 why that came to be. So. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been a thrill for me, and uh, I really appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for your persistence. <laughs> All right. Talk to you later, Harry. Thanks.
All right, so now in this segment, Can-Am Games, Sean and I will debate, discuss, dissect the virtues of some production techniques over others, instruments over others, blah, blah, blah. In this case, we're going to talk about whether we should go with four tracks or infinite tracks. I guess when it comes to getting an idea down, getting a mix down, four tracks versus infinite tracks. Is that right, Sean? That's correct. Okay, so where do you stand on this? Well, uh, there was just a reissue slash remix of Sgt. Pepper's that uh, Giles Martin, who is George Martin's son, did. And I I believe for all intents and purposes, uh, Sgt. Pepper was done on either four or eight tracks. And if you go back and listen to it, it's it's just symphonic and uh, complex and wonderful. And the production on it is unbelievable so i'm gonna i'm gonna err on the side of you know you can do everything that you need to do with four to eight tracks and if if you need more than that then um maybe you're not making the right decisions about what's important in your mix this is great because i just instantly disagree with everything that you said great, um, go for it. first of all okay so yes uh that record celebrated 50 years here's the thing the beatles didn't get access to eight track recorders until 1968 and sgt pepper came out in 67 so they were using pairs of four track machines and what the engineers at abbey road studios were known for really good at was bouncing down um all of those tracks i think they called them uh what do they used to call it they called it uh like um oh, i'm forgetting the name for it but uh, reduction mixes i think so they bounce things down on a one track print them onto a second four-track machine, and that's how they combine dozens of separate tracks into amazing finished recordings. But I guess where I sort of veer off with the whole, like, because my knee-jerk reaction is to go, infinite tracks is bad. But to be honest with you, you know, Zappa had a custom five-track recorder. Ever since eight-track multi-recording came available with Les Paul when he created it in, like, the 50s or whatever, people were obsessed with multi-track recording. And I feel like, you know, Pet Sounds, for example, is a great example of like incredible multi-track recording they used a whole bunch of eight track recorders i think that if you know if if you were the beach boys today coming out instead of like 1968 coming out in like 2008 or something i think they would be using like 150 tracks keep in mind that like back then in the 60s that was a big deal to have all those tracks they were limited by the technology and i think that if we imported like if we transplanted that band into current day they would be using all the like all the all the tools that they had in our era so i'm sort of hesitant to be like you can do some amazing stuff because you can do some amazing stuff but i think they'll be totally taking advantage of all the incredible digital audio technology that we have now okay, just like that, they were doing back then that may be but i think the the difference there is when you have when you are bouncing down when you're doing the reductive mixing if that's what they called it you're you're forced into a corner you're forced to make a decision about what stays and what goes and i think if you give the beach boys 160 tracks if you give brian wilson 160 tracks making pet sounds would be like making chinese democracy where you can just infinitely iterate and try new things and you don't, there are no limitations. And this actually goes to something that Harry said in our conversation, which is that um, around. Just shoving it in my face. Uh, uh, yep. Yeah. You weren't available for that conversation. So too bad you weren't there. Anyway, look, um, the infinite, he basically said that when you give creative people infinite uh, choices, they, they get sort of paralyzed by that. And that limitations are actually really good because, you know, creative people are going to strain against the limitation and potentially break through it. So, um, you know, if if you go and listen to, you know, some, I'll, I'll go back to my favorite example, which is like a, a, some of the early Led Zeppelin drum recordings. While they sound great, there are things about them that are also flawed. Like on Since I've Been Loving You, I was talking about this last night with somebody, there's the the squeaky kick drum pedal that that just haunts that song because it's so wide open and dynamic. And if you could go back and either, you know, just redo that sort of thing instantly and 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 have av- that available, um, you know, you wouldn't have these, you wouldn't have that great performance there captured. You'd have maybe a performance that sounds better technically, but the performance and the vibe just isn't there. 
I, I just I just think that we give these bands from the 60s and 70s like just way too much we give them the benefit of the doubt that they wouldn't be using all these tracks but back then that was a lot of tracks and they had a lot of money behind them to record multi-track stuff but i I see like i agree with what harry was saying about the technology forces you to make decisions and it it forces you to to like kind of be bold about that and not to just hem and haw and be changing out samples and switching through uh, you know, presets endlessly. And I'm not pointing the finger. Like I, I do that all the time, mm-hmm. but if, if I was limited to something else, maybe I'd, I'd make bolder choices. I think it's true that you should, you should limit yourself in a way that channels you toward creativity. And there's no shortage of examples where brevity, not just in music, but in anything is a good thing. Like Twitter, 140 characters, or look at like get out, which was like the biggest movie of this year, arguably that had like a $1 million budget. You know what I mean? But there's something to be said for it's like vastly overrated by the way i saw it over the weekend oh did you (laughs) yeah (laughs) maybe we need a new segment i know because i love our movie Um, our uh two thumbs down over here go ahead i gave it five bags of popcorn um that's a on cinema at the cinema reference for anyone but no but uh, i mean i agree with what harry's saying and i agree with what a lot of people are saying but i i like large canvas frescoes of a song I, I love paranoid android i don't know how many tracks were used on that but it wouldn't sound like paranoid android if they only restricted themselves to two eight track tape machines um and i love i mean i'm a little allergic to some of the muse stuff but every now and then a really big fresco from them sounds incredible and you just know they're using upwards of 100 you know plus tracks or whatever but I agree with the fundamental principle that you should restrict yourself in a way that drives you towards creativity. Look at Prince, for example. You know, total genius. He had Kiss. Uh, huge hit. I think, what, there's like keys, guitars, one vocal. There's no bass, right. and there's backup right. vocals, and that's it. Yep. And that's phenomenal. Same thing with, like, um, Dirty Mind. I think that's, like, probably when you boil it down, three tracks. Probably a lot of overdubs and stuff, but there's nothing to that track, and it was a huge hit. So... I agree in principle, but I think that we give people in the 60s and 70s way too much credit. They, I think, would be using... Look at Queen, for example. I mean, if Queen, instead of you know coming out in 1970, they came out in like 2007, I would guarantee that they'd be using a Pro Tools HDX system with 600 or 768 tracks at 48 kilohertz, and he'd be doing like a multiple hologram show in like three major cities in the world, because he was a total showman, Freddie Mercury. So that's, that's where I stand on that. Hmm... Okay. Um, well, I just think that, you know, you might be right about that, but is that just because they would be using those those options, to, you know, I think the question is, is it good for the final product? Absolutely. That's the, that's the question. Does it serve the song? I think it, it more serves, it, it might serve the song as we, as we used to, as we used to think about it, where it was this kind of stripped down more related to like a live band playing in a room or some facsimile thereof and not to just like whatever the fuck you can think of at any time you can make happen with a a sampler or um you know infinite tracks or something like that so well i'm gonna force you in the corner here i want you to tell me what your if you if you have any sort of you know big production guilty pleasure tracks tracks that you know are using upwards of 50 or 60 you know tracks and we're not talking about submixes just raw you know raw tracks is there any sure. sort of big frescoes yeah, that you course, like out there of course well i mean um yeah i feel like all the stuff on the the first side of okay computer like you mentioned um i think the flaming lips we i worked with dave fridman who is their producer and he said that at one point they had to um slave multiple pro tools rigs together so whatever that is, um, uh, and I, I love a lot of that stuff where you where there is like orchestration and there there's just this great grand scale of things. Um, but I, I find the more impactful stuff to be, just be simpler. Um, and I don't know. I I think it's also as we all know what you're interested in is, is shaped by probably what you're listening to in your adolescence. And who knows if I was growing up now, you know, I'd probably be a big like Drake fan or something. So, uh, it's hard to say. What are your, what are your favorite, um, what are your favorite tracks that are kind of stripped down? Uh, well, I, again, like I'm, I guess I'm, 
uh, I'm sort of undermining my own point because a lot of the examples that I have are tracks recorded by people who just didn't have the means. But, you know, to, 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 to have a huge multi-track setup, I would say that, you know, some of my favorite stuff comes from, let's say, Arthur Russell. Um, so he's just, just one guy in a cello and maybe, you know, he's got like a reverb pedal or something going into it. It's breathtaking. It's really simple really delicate and beautiful and it's just coming from you know just one guy he's in the room with you when you listen to that stuff um so yeah i'd say i don't know this topic was difficult for me because i see both sides of the argument um and i think that i think we can agree that it it depends on whether or not it serves the song and i think that people even if they don't have a huge knowledge of production or whatever they can hear the difference between some sort of finely crafted thing where you could tell that they decided, oh, we're going to make this perfect not by adding more stuff, but by knowing when there's nothing left to take away, and a huge, sopping, thick turd a la Muse. I think people can tell when <laughs> when something is overproduced. I feel like actually in, in the past five years or so, there's been kind of a movement back to the more stripped down stuff. I think this, like, Lord success and, you know, Frank Ocean success and the XX, all that stuff is pretty minimalist as as pop music goes. And sure. that's that's kind of refreshing. I'm sure it'll bounce back the other way, but um, it's it's nice it's nice to hear that. It's it's nice to hear that younger folks are engaged by more. I don't want to say simplistic, but just more um, kind of elegant stuff. I could also see how uh, when I reach your age, I wouldn't want to listen to anything that overwhelms me uh, from a cardiac <laughs> perspective. <laughs> well so played. I, I, sir. I'll see the appeal. You're welcome. Yeah, so for our next segment, where we sort of deconstruct a song of the moment, of the cultural moment, it's called Song Imploder, and I think that I'm going to pick the song I Promise by Radiohead. And if you don't know, this is actually one of three unreleased tracks from their 1997 masterpiece, OK Computer. It just popped up online. Nigel Godrich, I think, was behind sort of making it available. It has a video to accompany it. Um, And yeah, uh, Sean, what did you think of this track? Very interesting to hear something like that um, because uh, uh, OK Computer was an emotional touchstone and a musical touchstone for me for so long. Um, I just, you know, <laughs> I remember being like 18 or 19 and going through a breakup and just like had the OK Computer cassette just like jammed in there, like turned all the way up and driving around just like... <laughs> <laughs> for a minute there you know like uh <laughs> yeah just really um so i i have a real there's a real emotional connection to that album so then to be so far removed 20 years later and to hear that track um also with the within the context of what they've released since then was really interesting actually it was interesting to listen to um both in the kind of sonic um palette that they chose back then versus you know something like moonshape pool that came out um it's really interesting the first thing that struck me was that the drum the snare drum had some reverb on it which you just never hear them do anymore they're they are they record everything really dry and tight um so that was interesting uh and then i loved how buzzy the acoustic guitar was that was really cool and um the melody reminded me of a lot of House of Cards, which is a song of theirs from uh, In Rainbows, I think. So I, I really, I really enjoyed it. Um, I'll, I'll probably go back and listen to it again. Uh, it's definitely worth checking out on on YouTube. I think that yeah, everything you've said about the production is so true. Like this. Uh, you know, the one thing that I noticed a lot, I know how happy we're talking about other Radiohead stuff in comparison to this is, is the, the vocal, his vocal has a lot of reverb on it was very characteristic of the way that Godrich was producing them back then. If you listen Mm -hmm. to Moonshape Pool now, check out the track Daydreaming. That's Mm -hmm. almost bone dry as far as vocal production goes. Um, same thing with present tense. I feel like that's, that's become Nigel Godrich's kind of aesthetic is is that everything is so dry that when he does make a, a decision about with reverb, it just becomes this huge piece of the of the song. Yeah, like this, uh, the contrast is really apparent. 
Um, uh, everything about the release of this, I mean, coming out now when our lives are sort of engulfed by technology, the same themes apply. I mean, OK Computer was all about, I guess, trying to find or trying to figure out one's identity in the digital world. It was existential. It was weird. And the video reflects that. I know this is a podcast, but if you check out the video, there's this weird animatronic head that you don't really yeah. know is animatronic until the very end. And that just yeah. that mirrors perfectly a lot of themes with OK Computer. And it's the other great thing about it, too, is I think that if you show this to a Radiohead novice, someone with like a pedestrian knowledge of their records and you played, you know, you snuck in, uh, I promise, on Moonshaped Pool and played it for them, I think they would be fooled into thinking that you know that track came out i promise came out in 2016 not hmm. 1997 because it's, so, it's still so gorgeously produced and mm. relevant but like you said earlier sean like it definitely belongs uh stylistically and sonically on that record on okay computer for me they have no equivalent in terms of creating a whole uh, career um where they can take these risks from album to album and across like 10 years, they, they, you know, they, they took this huge risk from basically from Kid A all the way through King of Limbs. Uh, they were like, eh, let's go do this other thing for like 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> and now Moonshade Pool is, is sort of back a little bit more, um, you know, kind of straight down the middle um, rock music. And I don't, I don't feel like there's anybody else that has the sort of credibility as songwriters, as producers, as musicians, as, as they do. So I'm biased, not even dead or Not even dead or alive? I'm just kidding. Uh, um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you mean um, Bon Jovi? You mean uh, Styx? Styx? Oh, uh, no. Gotcha. Uh, no, I, I, I agree. Uh, you know, that's the other problem. I mean, we're getting into a different conversation now. It's like there's no focus on artist development within the labels. And I feel like Radiohead were really given a long leash to sort of evolve and change and do things and try things. And the only other band that did that outside of Dead or Alive or Bon Jovi would be the Beatles. Um, <laughs> right. So it's it's a thrill to be alive now to like watch to be there for the evolution. I mean, I was 11 when OK Computer came out. I think you were probably about 38. <laughs> That's 30. correct. Yes. Yeah. I think I was like at your soccer practice watching you. Right. <laughs> um that would explain a lot actually when i go back and <laughs> when i go back to those therapy sessions i was in. go you know, go look at some of the pictures from your team i was there <laughs> <laughs> you were that sweet old man with orange slices at halftime <laughs> we'll listen to radiohead check this record out it's super sad and this is getting cut from the podcast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> all right. Well, that's all for us here on the new audio podcast. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, thank you to Harry Shearer. And uh, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, Google Plus. And uh, we will see you next time on the new audio podcast. <laughs>